Swift Unwrapped. But before we start, we'd like to thank Square for sponsoring this episode of Swift Unwrapped. Square has an in-app payments SDK for iOS that gives you a secure, managed way to take payments. It enables mobile apps to accept credit cards on the Square platform with a pre-built, really slick UI. In the US, it also makes it possible to accept Google Pay and Apple Pay. You can learn more about the in-app payments SDK for iOS and Square's other payments and commerce APIs and SDKs on Square's new developer YouTube channel. You can check it out. It has tutorials and more information at youtube.com slash squaredev today. Once again, that's youtube.com slash squaredev. Thank you, Square, for sponsoring this episode of Swift Unwrapped. So we have a lot to discuss today. Um, there's been uh, a handful of different announcements over the past uh, couple of weeks in the Swift community. Some announcements about Swift on Windows, uh, Swift and C++, some updates on some proposals, and even uh, Swift Playgrounds for Mac was released. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Uh, so we can start diving in. I'm particularly excited about the progress that's been progressively made over like two plus years to get Swift fully operational on Windows. Yeah, and is it? It's still not a hundred percent there, is it? Or uh, was this announcement kind of like, yeah, everything is good to go now? Yeah. So there's still quite a bit more to do um, to get Swift to be um, as full featured on Windows as it is currently on macOS and and Linux. Some some big aspects that have still yet to be done are the package manager, that still effectively doesn't work. I know there's been there's been some good progress, but for the most part, uh, the recent announcement on the Swift forums is really about um, sharing how many of the tests are now passing on Windows. It's seventeen hundred tests uh, minus like seven or seven or eight that run on Linux that don't currently run or pass on Windows. And those are Unixy tests. They're tests where the APIs may make sense for Darwin platforms and Unixy platforms, but not necessarily Windows. So for the most part, I think it's fair to say that Swift the language and Core CoreLibs Foundation is pretty much at parity now on Windows. But as we know, there's there's a lot more to the language story than that. There's the package manager, and uh, as far as I understand, there's still quite a bit of work to, to be done to get it uh, to parity. So you still can't grab a Swift package that's cross-platform, works on Linux and Mac OS, and just do Swift build or Swift run. Um, so it's there's still some more work needed for that, but we should still highlight the massive accomplishment that it is to portable code that's written in Swift and should hopefully make it easier to now start unblocking some of the other work that needs to be done like Swift Package Manager. Yeah, it's really interesting to see this progress. Um, it has taken a long time. And not that that's like a, a negative thing. It's just like it's shocking how much work it is to um, to make this all come together. Yeah, Ankit uh, from the Swift Package Manager team shared um, that there's been a lot that's already been done to make Swift Package Manager a little bit more portable. It 
now being it now builds with CMake um, or a CAN. There's a lot of file system abstractions that now go through Foundation, and so the fact that CoreLibs Foundation itself has been fully ported will help. Um, a lot of the POSIX specific compatibility layer aspects have been removed, so there's a lot um, there's a lot now that the Swift Package Manager does to simplify doing that last mile bit of work to get it fully running on Windows. Yeah, when when that day comes, that'll be pretty exciting for sure. Yeah, um, Salim shares that uh, packages build using Swift PM, which is news to me. But he shares that getting from building to working and stable is another journey. So, mm. um, you know, don't don't go off and produce executables um, yeah. without yeah. uh, the assumption that that they'll they'll be failing. There are some issues in uh, LL build apparently, and you know, I definitely would say that there's still quite a bit of work left to do. Yeah, and I also want to point out that uh, Salim joined the core team, which we mentioned in the uh, last episode and uh, sounds like they will be continuing this push for getting Swift fully functional on on Windows. Yeah, I think it's clear that Salim's done a lot of work single-handedly and I just hope that with the foundation that he's laid, no pun intended, that the, the rest of the Swift contributors can really start to factor in um, portable or portability in their designs moving forward and in their features because this is something where if it's not um, fully tested or um, integrated with continuous integration on a regular basis that it's very easy for those incompatibilities to creep back in. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, there there are a few comments on this thread, uh, some people who are very interested in this. I wonder how widespread the uh, desire is for having Swift available on Windows? Uh, it's probably not very prevalent right now, uh, if I had to guess, but it's completely um, an uneducated guess. Probably because the, the compatibility hasn't been there so far, so there probably isn't as much of a demand for it because you have a bit of a chicken and egg situation. But I think if instead of people thinking, oh, Swift, that's the... Um, Apple language that runs on Apple platforms. Right. If right. Um, the the only way to move that needle to move that perception is by having better and better and stable support over time, mm-hmm. um, so that by the time someone does go and try it on Windows or some flavor of Linux, that um, that it just works. And so, y- you do need to build stability in first before you can really expect much adoption. Mm -hmm. Apple had a good strategy in a lot of ways where um, by pushing it first to Apple platforms and to developers of Apple Apple platforms, um, they could really sort of constrain and and self-select in a lot of ways the people who were early adopters and the people who um, could could afford to be early adopters. Mm -hmm. Whereas there there's some great languages and ecosystems on when when you want to write code that runs on linux or windows um that has a much better portability story uh and so that that's going to be a much tougher nut to crack that's a good point i guess with um the source kit lsp changes as well uh there could be some future where 
you can easily write Swift code and VS code on Windows. Yeah, and this is this is where I think um, uh, that there's a lot more to do to finish this story of portability, right? There's the whole developer experience aspect that should not be neglected. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot more that's been happening um, in the Swift ecosystem. And speaking of portability, uh, part of that is interoperability with other languages, especially other very portable languages like C++. And recently, um, Dmitry Grabenko, who um, is at Apple, I'm not sure if he's part of the Swift core team, but he's been involved with Swift since the very early days, recently shared a manifesto. The manifesto is massive uh, on interoperability between Swift and C++, which is a topic that's been visited time and time again, especially um, by the Swift for TensorFlow folks who've started to build out support for C++ integration with uh, a hidden compiler flag, enable C++ interop. So it's great to start to see a lot more um, comprehensive discussion around all the various aspects of an extremely complicated language meeting another very complicated and and distinct language, right? C++ meeting Swift. A lot of those concepts don't map one-to-one, even though they do share a lot of the same capabilities. Uh, the way that they're implemented are completely different. So um, mapping out that entire surface area, or, or really most of it, is is really impressive. Uh, Dimitri says that the manifesto is over 100 kilobytes long of just plain text. So it's it's huge. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it now. It's almost, uh, it's about 3,400 lines in this markdown file. And um, yeah, it's quite impressive. You know, I I would say I know in quotes C++. Um, it's been a while since I've ever seriously programmed in it, but... The more I read and learn about C++, the more I realize that my knowledge of C++ is just very surface level. It is such a complex language. Yeah, I had uh, the pleasure, and I mean that sincerely, of of working a lot with Objective-C++ (laughs) and interfacing between Swift, Objective-C, and C++. Mm-hmm. And that was just amazingly powerful, but full of sharp edges. But but still, it was it was like strapping on a rocket ship yeah. uh, using duct tape and, and just flying around. Um, but it, it meant that you could very easily, quite literally crash. Yeah, there's so much to know about advanced C++ usage. Um, even, I mean, a lot of things in this document are things that I never even encountered in my like C++ experience, which was, you know, not super in-depth, but um, it looks like a very challenging project to make this work. Yeah, and that's definitely not going to be a one-and-done kind of project either. It's going to last for the entirety of Swift's existence, this concept of incrementally adding more interoperability with C++. You know, I thought the whole point of Swift was to not allow anyone to, or not force anyone to write C++ ever again, right? Right. And one way to do that is to allow you to uh, keep your C++ instead of Uh, having to write more to get rid of it. 
Right, but isn't it more fun to rewrite everything in Swift? I I sense a blog post coming here, Jesse. And actually, that that segues nicely into uh, another thing we wanted to discuss today. Speaking of rewriting things in Swift, there was uh, an announcement of uh, Swift Crypto on the blog and a new open source project. It's not actually rewriting, but... Um, I I wouldn't be surprised if there was some aspect of rewriting here where yeah. um, the common crypto APIs or, or framework is closed source. It's it's actually a- Apple and, and security frameworks have this weird relationship between open and closed source. I think there is is it the um, I mean some of mm-hmm. the compression uh, libraries that Apple has are open source. Which you know, compression and and crypto aren't the same thing, but um, they do share a lot of the the same primitives in terms of how they operate. Um, they also both deal with sort of data in, data out, and so they they have this this strange relationship. But I imagine that by Apple writing a Swift version of Common Crypto um, entirely in Swift, it's given them. Similar advantages as CoreLibs Foundation um, in terms of not having to worry as much about the intellectual property involved in open sourcing existing code, especially after years and years of iteration and and work that's gone into it, but still uh, sort of have a better foundation for the future. Now, there's been a lot of rough edges to CoreLibs Foundation and especially its relationship with Foundation itself. And there's no clear direction from the outside as to whether or not, um, mm-hmm. you know, CoreLibs Foundation and Foundation proper will coexist forever or if one will subsume the other. But I think a lot of those questions still remain for something like crypto. But it is nonetheless really useful to know that you can just code directly against common crypto. And then if you want to add um, Linux support or Windows support, presumably, assuming that they add support to that, that uh, you don't need to pull in some third-party project mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily map its APIs one-to-one to what you initially wrote, um, you can you can rest easy uh, to know that you can use the same APIs. You don't need to pull anything in if you're on Darwin um, those are all good properties to have. Right, right. So it's more of um, Swift Crypto is more of a more of a wrapper, right? And there, the underlying implementation actually changes depending on where you're uh, writing code. Yeah, I think it's a wrapper on Darwin, but it has its own implementation on uh, non-Darwin, right? So if Common Crypto is available, it'll proxy to that, so to speak. So it's not just a wrapper. It's it's sort of a right. unified interface right. that occasionally proxies to one thing and occasionally proxies to something else. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting project. Yeah. I think there's a lot of what is it? Is it boring SSL that it vendors? Yes, on other platforms. Yeah. Um so or on on non Apple platforms. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it is it is a wrapper on all platforms. If you want to look at it that way, um, there's still, you know, a decent amount of um, of source to it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean that's not to um, somehow discredit this. I think it's still massively useful, right? Because then 
the code that you write uh, is portable because you're talking to a single interface, you know, and the implementation shouldn't matter. Yeah, there's an interesting um, aspect to this, which is making democratizing closed source APIs, at least it appears to be a goal. I don't know to what extent it will actually manifest itself, but um, there's an evolution section of the Swift Crypto uh, readme mm -hmm. for the project. And it says if if an API that's contributed to Swift Crypto um, is judged to be generally valuable and suitable for contribution to Apple CryptoKit, right? So it's not common crypto, it's CryptoKit that I was referring to. Um, the API will be merged uh, into mm. staging and it will... It's, it, it, it's expected to become available in Apple, Apple CryptoKit by the time that they do a new release of that. So it's not open sourcing CryptoKit. Um, it's not sharing any of the implementation, but it is democratizing a little bit some of the evolution, or at least in theory. I, I am a little bit skeptical as to how much that will actually end up being the case or how many times this will be applied if Corlib's foundation is any indication mm -hmm. as far as I know it hasn't happened other than contributions from Apple <laughs> from folks who were on the foundation team who went and contributed things to Corlib's foundation and then foundation got it or they put yeah. it in a shared right. layer above it so I'm a little bit skeptical but I I, I guess I appreciate the, the thought yeah <laughs> right but I guess, you know, uh, you have to deal with those changes with some level of scrutiny, right? Otherwise, you could just be flooded with uh, a bunch of APIs that then, you know, some internal team at yeah. Apple now has to maintain, et cetera, et cetera. So. I was uh, interested in seeing that this project uses JIB, um, Generate Your Boilerplate. You know, it's it, it very much seemed like uh, a one-off yeah. scripting solution that when when we first saw it in the Swift repo, and it really hasn't, you know, gained adoption mm -hmm. or, or really much interest anywhere outside of that project so far, and so to see it also used here seems like, you know, I'm I'm not convinced that um, putting more um, adoption or using Jib in more places is necessarily a good idea. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal is to eventually get rid of it, right? Um, but I guess there's still limitations in, in Swift that make it necessary to use for now. Where do you see that, that the goal would be to get rid of Jib? Uh, not specifically for Swift crypto, but like in general. Um, there's discussions a while back. I think it's hard to remember. I, th I think uh, Chris Latner, Doug Greger, a few people, someone made a comment like it's a bug, not a feature. And the goal would be to eventually phase it out as much as possible. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that discussion happened uh, somewhere on, on Twitter or maybe on the Swift forums. This was a while back though. I see. There, there have been a lot of jib reductions in the main Swift repo, right? As as Swift has matured and some new features have been added. So up next on our list, um, a lighter topic: Swift Playgrounds for Mac was uh, released. Have you had a chance to check it out? Uh, no, I haven't. And I actually, in the time since that was announced, I, I recently upgraded to Catalina or changed my OS to Catalina. So 
Uh, so I could now try it, but I haven't yeah. haven't had the yeah. time yet. Um, have you taken it for a spin? Yeah, uh, just briefly. Um, so it's very similar to the iPad app because it basically is. It's a Catalyst app. So I, I think I feel like there wasn't much new to see if you've been or if you've used the, the iPad version before. But man, I personally just think Catalyst is not a good experience on the Mac. I think it's great that you know, this is available now, and I think it'll make some things easier for people who are actually making playgrounds and, like, sharing those because uh, you can probably do it a little easier on your Mac now that this is available. But, um, yeah, Catalyst is just a weird experience. I'm not super into it. Yeah, I feel like it's definitely helpful to have apps that otherwise wouldn't exist on the mac to give them a home um i think that's that's a net positive Mm -hmm. i think that catalyst is still in its early stages right we're still in like catalyst is less than a year old that's true so uh, what i'd like to see is sort of more and more of a unified story over time and have this improve and i think of the screenshots that i've seen at least uh that it's it's really not all that bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's more of like, you know, nitpicky things that you can really tell like, oh, this is like an iPad app running on a Mac right now, you know? Right. But um, in general, I think, you know, the goal or like one of the goals of the Playgrounds app seems to be around education and like getting younger kids uh, interested in programming. So I think from that perspective, being able to transition um someone like from the ipad to a mac so then you're you know actually typing on a keyboard and stuff it starts to get i don't know maybe a little bit more real yeah you know i think that could be a pretty positive thing for you know someone who's learning um switching gears a bit the uh standard library preview package that we discussed a few episodes ago is now live uh so you can go and check that out i think it has one um, preview right now, which is, uh, it is the range set proposal. That was SE270. Um, so this is a good way, actually, if you haven't had a chance to check out that proposal, you can just include the standard library preview package directly into your code base using the Swift package manager. And then you could actually see, uh, how those APIs would, would improve your experience with, with Swift. So uh, it's early days, but so far it seems to be a useful direction. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And it's interesting kind of how the project is structured. Like it looks like each proposal will be its own module. And then the uh, the standard library preview package just lists will list all of the proposal modules as uh, dependencies. So you just import them all at once. And finally, Joe Groff, uh, recently posted an update on two proposals that were quite old, actually. They, they came around in the Swift 3 era, uh, proposal 110 and 155. Uh, they both deal with how Swift used to, uh, or maybe currently still does, um, uh, distinguished between single tuple and 
multiple argument function types. Um, so previously, you were able to sort of intermix uh, tuples and function arguments. So when you defined a function, like a, an inline closure, you could interpret the parameters as a single tuple or uh, as like individual parameters is kind of murky, um, is kind of a strange behavior in my opinion. So these two proposals had like some work done on them. They were approved, but never really fully implemented. And it looks like those will be available as of Swift 5.2, which is currently in beta. So it's kind of nice to see these uh, these two old proposals sort of wrapped up a little bit. Yeah, it's just uh, good tidying. Well, I think that's all we have time to discuss today. As always, thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped and other tech podcasts at spec.fm. And if you enjoy the show, please do take a minute and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time. And once again, we'd like to thank Square for sponsoring this episode of Swift Unwrapped. You can check out their developer YouTube channel at youtube.com slash square dev.